The system is rigged. It's rigged against poor women. It's rigged against women who don't have the resources and who ultimately don't have the choice about whether or not they want to care for their children. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And yes, the system is rigged. So very rigged. This episode, we're getting a crash course in just how deeply rigged the system is by focusing in on the women it cares least about. Namely, poor women of color and single moms. The same women, in fact, that the system disproportionately relies on to care for the rest of us. Domestic workers, home health aides, daycare workers, cleanup crews. These are also, though, the same women that today's guest has dedicated her life to as an activist and academic. My name is Premila Nadison. I'm a professor of history at Barnard College, and I co-direct the Barnard Center for Research on Women. I'm a historian and a writer, a mother, a daughter. Um, I have written about the welfare rights movement, about domestic worker organizing, and I just recently published a book on care called Care, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. That's right, unladies. We've got an esteemed professor at the head of class today. And I don't think Premila would mind me saying she just really, really knows her shit. Her two previous books are Welfare Warriors, The Welfare Rights Movement in the United States, and Household Workers Unite, the untold story of African-American women who built a movement. In her latest book, Care, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, she foregrounds those histories and radical Black feminism to lay out how, quote, the rise of the contemporary care industry parallels that of the military-industrial complex during World War II and the post-war era. Yeah, we're talking military-industrial complex size issues, people. Sounds serious, because it is. And it's not just that often underpaid labor that has mushroomed. It's also the absence of care for people and parents whom American society has never given a choice but to work in substandard positions for substandard pay or be punished. I was a student activist before I decided to go to graduate school and become a professor. And I was deeply interested in questions of social justice around feminism, around economic justice, around racial justice. And I think I had more questions than answers. And so for me, I think an important question has always been, how do ordinary people participate in social change? How and why do things change in the world? And what I have found in my academic reading is that ordinary people played a powerful role in shaping the world we live in. Your newest book, Care, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, was an education in and of itself to read. And 
I want to do a little bit of table setting also to help listeners follow the overall kind of concepts that you lay out in the book. So first, how do you define care and care work? I love that term table setting. (laughs) Um, It's a great way to think about what are the basic things we need in order to move forward. So care is about nurturing, feeding, nursing, assisting, and loving human beings. The domestic worker rights group in New York City called Domestic Workers United used a slogan in the early 2000s that care work is the work that makes all other work possible. And I think that's a great way to think about it. It is the work that sustains us day to day, that allows us to live, to thrive. So it's the household labor, the food service, childcare, education, nursing. I think we do have a kind of a care discourse that is dominant today. And it understands care as a kind of a universal good, something we're all invested in. There's a kind of mutual dependency around care. But I think one of the things that universal care discourse does is it it flattens out our understanding of care and what's at stake. So I think what's happening right now as people talk about care is that some people's care is privileged over other people's care. And we saw this during the pandemic. There was a visible recognition of essential workers and care workers. And here in New York City at seven o'clock, people would open their windows and bang their pots and pans as a kind of thank you and recognition of the work of essential workers. And that was important, of course. And we talked about the value of this work, but those workers didn't always get the pay, the benefits, and the protections that they needed or deserved. And it really was a framework of what kind of service are they providing for us? They are taking care of us. And so people were considered important to the degree that they took care of other more privileged people. And that's a hierarchical understanding of care that I think we need to be really mindful of. I think If we want to think about a real universal discourse of care, we should be concerned about all people, whether or not they provide a service, whether or not they're essential workers, whether or not they care for us. Yeah, one of the observations you make in the book is that, you know, many folks doing paid care work often don't call it necessarily care work. Yeah. So what do they call it instead? Yeah. So, you know, I thought a lot about this language of care and care work. And I've written a book about the domestic worker rights movement in the 60s and 70s. And they did not use the language of care to talk about this work. In fact, they talked about how care, the understanding of care and the emotional investment and the expectations that they care and love the people for whom they worked was a burden and was a kind of exploitation. And feminist scholars in the 1980s wrote about this too. Arlie Hochschild wrote an important book called The Managed Heart that talked about emotional labor as exploitative. In the 60s and 70s, these domestic workers wanted to be known as household technicians. That is, they saw themselves as professionals, as doing work that required skilled labor, and they wanted that notion of skill and professionalism to be highlighted. I think the term care work has been misunderstood and misused in a lot of ways. It's been associated with women's labor, women's work. Um, And there's a good reason for that. Caring occupations are disproportionately female occupations, and women have been disproportionately involved in doing care work. 
But I think there's also been an erasure of men who are engaged in what we might call care work. And we could think about athletic coaches in high school, for example, you know, who are mentoring boys. Um, is that care work? And if we don't call it care work, why don't we call it care work? Or doormen in large buildings. They are the ones who hold a door open for you, who might hold a package for you, who might help you in various ways if you have mobility issues. And so I think we should think carefully about when we use the term care or care work and why we're using it. So the next big idea or big term that was introduced to me in reading care is social reproduction. What is social reproduction? This is a term that socialists and Marxist feminist scholars have used since the 1970s. And I think it's a really important concept because it allows us to broaden how we think about care. Social reproduction refers not only to unpaid household labor, but also the work in the marketplace that's necessary for the maintenance of daily human life and the reproduction of human life. So it includes education, health care, food service, as well as the unpaid household labor that people engage in every day. What Marxist feminists have taught us is that this work is essential for the functioning of society, right? So without it, society would not be able to continue. We wouldn't produce a new generation of workers. But they also argued that it's essential, both paid and unpaid, for capitalist profit. That is social reproduction, produces the workers who produce the products. And in that way, it creates labor power for capital. And so their term, social reproduction, I think is a, is a useful term because it moves us outside of the private household and allows us to think about the many locations and sites and forms that this labor takes. The last table setting term is racial capitalism. What is this and also how does it manifest in this context that we're talking about? Yeah, and this is a term that might not be familiar to a lot of listeners. It is a term that was originally derived uh, from South Africa and everything about capitalism uh, in apartheid South Africa was suffused with race. You could not talk about capitalism or profit in South Africa uh, without understanding how it was a system built on racism and capitalist profit making. So those two were deeply connected. That term was expanded by Cedric Robinson, who was an African-American theorist and scholar and the uh, historian Robin Kelly has written quite a bit about this. But Cedric Robinson understood capitalism more broadly, not just the specific case of South Africa, but understood capitalism as inextricably interwoven with the constructs of racial difference and hierarchy. So he argues that at its inception, structures of capitalism depended on race and that we actually cannot have capitalism without race. And how is that racial hierarchy also embedded into cultures around care work or systems around care work in the United States? So I think we can think about, you know, the unpaid labor of care that um, 
you know, all families do for their own families. And that has been disproportionately women's work. But in the paid labor force, what we have seen historically is black and brown women or immigrant women who are doing the care work for other more privileged families. In the 19th century, there were Irish women, German women who were actually racialized, who were understood as distinct and different and inferior in most cases. And that justified why they were in the occupation of domestic work. Paid domestic work has historically been an underpaid, undervalued occupation, one in which there's an imbalance of power between employer and employee, where people are not paid what they're worth, are exploited, underpaid, asked to do things that are well beyond what most people would consider acceptable. And African-American women historically have served as domestic workers in this country under slavery and even after the end of slavery in the 19th century really up until the 1960s and 1970s. And more recently, we've seen immigrant women of color, Filipino women, Caribbean women, African women who are working as domestic workers. And the question of race is profoundly important for why they end up in the occupation and how their exploitation is justified. So I think it's really hard to think about why employers underpay people without understanding how race becomes a part of their framework for the person who's doing this work. And it seems like that also extends to unpaid care work. So who was Johnny Tillman and what led her to spearheading the welfare rights movement? Johnny Tillman was one of the most important leaders of the welfare rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. I made national headlines that day, front page of the newspaper, me and Sergeant Shriver. <laughs> in, in here in Washington? Here in Washington, all over the world, television across the, across the country because I call the poverty program a liar, a big lie. I'm sure I didn't speak no more than 10 minutes, if that long. Scared to death because I had never been in front of no night before. That was a movement that demanded state assistance to allow poor women to stay home and care for their children. That crucially important care work that we all value so much. And in order to understand why she waged this movement, we have to step back a little bit. So the Welfare Program for Poor Single Mothers was initiated in the 1930s during the Great Depression under the assumption that women without a breadwinner needed the state to step in and provide support so that those women could stay home and care for their children. So the imaginary and the real recipients in the minds of these policymakers were white women for whom gendered expectations dictated that motherhood was their primary role. When more women of color joined the welfare roles in the 1960s, the program became more punitive. Welfare administrators began to institute more work requirements and tried to push women off the welfare roles into the workforce. And so it is this kind of lack of support that I think uh, illustrates how race played a profoundly important role in shaping 
who was entitled to welfare and who was not. And it was an indication of how the mothering of white women was valued, but the mothering of women of color was not. Women of color, black and brown women, immigrant women, historically did not have the same kinds of privileges, if you want to call it a privilege, didn't have the same kinds of privileges to be able to stay home and mother their children. So Johnny Tillman was uh, born in Arkansas to a sharecropping family. She eventually had six children. She got divorced and moved to Los Angeles. She worked in a laundry while she was there. And when she developed health problems, she got on welfare. And she very quickly learned the very punitive and surveillance nature of the program, right? So a caseworker who would come in and inventory her refrigerator, how her monthly benefits was being cut, the way she was questioned by her caseworker. And so this is an indication of the way in which the mothering of women of color historically has not been valued in the same way. And the welfare system is just one example of this. We also know that coerced sterilizations, for example, have been disproportionately performed on black and brown women, especially Puerto Rican and indigenous women in this country. And the assumption is that their mothering is less valuable than the mothering of white women. White women have historically been confined to mothering, have been encouraged to have children, have been discouraged from entering the workforce. And there's a very different scenario for women of color. And is welfare rights organization, the kind of work that Johnny Tillman is doing, is that also kind of taking a page from what the domestic labor movement is doing and the ways that they are dignifying unpaid care work? Well, the domestic worker rights movement was an advocacy organization for paid domestic workers. So those were women who wanted to professionalize domestic work, paid domestic work, who wanted greater protections and benefits, higher wages, things like that. And so the two movements are parallel. They're happening around the same time. And I think it's important to think about them in the same historical moment. So on the one hand, people like Johnny Tillman were advocating for the right to have the option to stay home and care for their children. They, they wanted a state support system that gave them enough monthly assistance to be able to stay home. They did not mandate that women have to stay home, of course. But if, in fact, women moved into the workforce, what the domestic worker rights movement was advocating was that the jobs that especially poor, unskilled women were being pushed into, such as domestic work, would in fact be dignified and decent paying work. So I think we have to think about these in both ways. I don't think any of these movements, including the women's movement, wanted to mandate that women have to be in the workforce or that women have to be home. I think where they were is pushing for women to have the options to be able to make those choices for themselves and being able to have the kind of support necessary to be able to make those choices. I think alongside this was the Wages for Housework movement, which is another contemporary movement at that time that played an important role in how we think about household labor and care work. This was a movement that was started by Selma James, uh, who was a radical activist and theorist, Margaret Prescott and Sylvia Federici. And they started this movement in the 1970s to bring into the conversation the work of unpaid household labor 
of women, and they had several goals. One was to recognize household labor as work, as work that was essential for the functioning of capitalism. And two, related to this, was to broaden the notion of who was a worker and consequently who could participate in and lead worker struggles, right? So who could be seen as part of the working class or engage as part of a working class movement. And so, you know, I, I think these three movements together help us understand how there was really an intersection between how unpaid household labor for either women on welfare or middle-class women who are pushing for wages for unpaid household labor and domestic worker rights advocates who were pushing for higher wages for paid domestic workers. We're all really intertwined in trying to think about how we can revalue and bring greater recognition to household labor more generally. Well, and it's Fascinating to learn of these histories like in this time today in 2024, when it seems like, yes, there has been more visibility and attention paid to the working conditions and uplift of paid care workers, whereas on the unpaid labor, the more like wages for housework, the right to choose to stay home and care for your family if that is what you want or need to do. It doesn't seem like the dial has moved on that too much. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. I think we may have moved one step forward in terms of understanding why we need to bring more uh, pay and benefits to paid care workers. I think certainly during the pandemic, we saw more advocacy around that. And I think we may have taken a few steps backwards in terms of thinking about how people who want to care for their own children and their own family members, it's not just children, right? Elder care is a growing problem in this country. Disability care, in part because the institutional supports are not there. So how can we construct a system where our only solution is not trying to find paid care workers, but in fact, trying to find ways for us to be able to care for our own loved ones, if that's in fact what we choose to do. Now, I also want to ask about the impact of the dismantling of welfare starting in 1996. How did that undermine or even, to, to use a word that you did in the book, demonize care work? Yeah, 1996 was a pivotal moment in the history of welfare and support for single mothers in this country. And that was when Bill Clinton signed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. It's a very long name for the dismantling of welfare. Today we are ending welfare as we know it. But I hope this day will be remembered not for what it ended, but for what it began. A new day that offers hope, honors responsibility, rewards work, and changes the terms of the debate so that no one in America ever feels again the need to criticize people who are poor on welfare, but instead feels the responsibility to reach out to men and women and children 
who are isolated, who need opportunity, and who are willing to assume responsibility and give them the opportunity and the terms of responsibility. So after the signing of that bill, it was no longer an entitlement, meaning that if you lived in, you know, a state and your income fell below a certain threshold and you were a single parent, you were not guaranteed state assistance. The state would get federal dollars, but they could use those federal dollars for whatever they wanted So they could use it to create job training programs. They could give it to large chain supermarkets to hire people like you. They could use it for fingerprinting programs, for administrative costs. In fact, the vast majority of welfare money today, 75%, does not go to direct cash assistance. It goes to either services or to the administration of the program. And that that's a reversal from 1997. So in 1997, 75% of welfare dollars went to basic cash assistance. And this has had a devastating impact on poverty in this country. There are 40 million Americans who live in poverty today. The UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, his name is Philip Alston, did a, a survey and a study, traveled around the country in 2017, and found that there are 1.5 million American households today living in extreme poverty. That's nearly twice as many as 20 years ago. The National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty uh, found that there's an estimated 3.7 million people who uh, are experiencing housing insecurity. And these poverty statistics are disproportionately borne by single mothers. Single mothers are six times more likely to live in poverty than two-parent families and twice as likely to be poor compared to the families with a single father. And this is both because of women's lower wages and the caring responsibilities that disproportionately fall on women. And so I I think the welfare system that has become more punitive and it has also become a site of profit extraction for the private sector has proven to not be the safety net that I think that it was initially hoped to be. I work with a group in Mississippi called the Mississippi Low Income Child Care Initiative. And that's a group of poor women on public assistance and their advocates. And they're fighting for expanded child care assistance so mothers on welfare can meet the federal employment mandate. And it's a very, very difficult battle. Mississippi is the poorest state in the country. It has the highest infant mortality rate and child poverty rates, but it's the stingiest when it comes to welfare assistance. So only 5% of eligible families in the state of Mississippi receive uh, welfare assistance. And the average monthly stipend is $260 a month for a family of three, which is really nothing. It's $9 a day. So that that's just one indication of the impact of the dismantling of welfare and the ways in which There has been this shift from this idea that if you're poor, you should be entitled to a certain basic minimum income to the use of those federal dollars for various purposes that the state has decided it'd like to use it for. And this could probably be its own podcast or many podcasts, but how does also child welfare and the foster care system factor into 
this. Yeah. So a lot of states have actually taken welfare dollars that should go to cash assistance for poor families, and they have moved that money over into the child welfare and foster care system. We think about child welfare and foster care as state programs that step in to assist people in times of need. So they, we think they offer the services when families cannot or do not care for children. That is far from the reality, however. Uh, the legal scholar Dorothy Roberts has written a really important book called Torn Apart. And in that book, she calls the child welfare system a family policing system. And that is because it is so closely associated with surveillance and a punitive approach. In most cases, children are removed, she argues, not because of abuse, but because of neglect. And that's a very vague and subjective category that's often conflated with poverty. So if you're poor, in many cases, you're often considered a neglectful parent. And rather than providing the support and services you might need, the state, in many cases, will take those children away from you. According to uh, one report, half of all Black and Indigenous children will experience an intervention by Child Protective Services by the time they are 18. Black and brown children are much more likely to end up in foster care, even when their parents would prefer to keep the family together. And so child welfare has really served as a wedge to break up families and to destroy communities. Well, And it also seems like it leaves parents, often single mothers, in impossible positions Because in order to, if I have my facts straight, in order to receive any kind of assistance, they have to have a job that takes them out of the house, therefore away from their children. But that job is probably extremely low paying. So it's not like it's, you know, getting them into better circumstances, but in the process of making menial pay and being away from their children, that is then interpreted by the state as neglect. Absolutely. You know, and that's the crux of the issue. So if you force women to take jobs outside the home and you do not provide adequate or affordable child care, they have no choice but to sometimes leave their children home alone or to create makeshift child care solutions. And that might mean leaving a, a younger child with an older child, having a neighbor take care of a child. And those can be unreliable, but those then become the basis for being a neglectful parent. So the system is rigged. It's rigged against poor women. It's rigged against women who don't have the resources and who ultimately don't have the choice about whether or not they want to care for their children. So what is the radical Black feminist response to this entire rigged system? And why is it essential? The care movement, I would say, has had a complicated relationship with feminism more broadly. And mainstream feminists have often pushed for white middle-class women to be able to enter the workforce. And that's because they were prevented and discouraged from entering the workforce. And that meant that these white women who were entering the workforce wanted and needed other women to take over their caring responsibilities that they were no longer able to do. And the women they hired, as we know from, from what we understand about the paid care labor force, were largely women of color, Latinx women, migrant women, 
And so in this regard, the liberation of middle-class women depended upon the exploitation of poorer women. And we also see this now, right, how the care crisis is framed. And the care crisis is defined really in terms of white middle-class women ignoring the fact that families of color have experienced a care crisis for generations. Radical Black feminists have taken a very different approach. And, you know, dating back to the 1930s and the 1940s, radical Black feminists have always looked at the connections between what you could call the crisis of care in Black families, their need to work outside the home, their inability to provide and care for their own children, as well as the problems and the exploitation and the low pay that was associated with paid care work, which was the primary occupation for African-American women alongside agricultural work up until the 1960s. So people like Esther Cooper Jackson, Claudia Jones, Angela Davis have written a great deal about paid domestic work and also about how this prevented African-American women from caring for their own children. And Black feminists today are pushing for a more expansive understanding of care, one that takes into account the needs of poor families. The Mothers Outreach Network in Washington, D.C. is led by Melody Webb, and they're calling for a guaranteed annual income to support all families. There's a group called the Springboard for Opportunities in Mississippi that is also pushing for a guaranteed annual income. And I think the question that they are asking through that framework of a guaranteed income is how can we create a system where we understand that the basic necessities of human life, healthcare, housing, food, education are basic human rights that everyone is entitled to. So care work will always be with us. And I think it's a building block for any kind of radical future that we want to create. Is that radical future possible? I believe it is. I believe it is. And we saw during the pandemic how people were able to come together. We see it around us all the time. There are places in the country that have really been abandoned by the state and people have picked up the pieces and they've they've moved forward and they've shown up for one another and they're cared for one another. And I think that matters, not because those small actions are going to lead to radical change, but they could. And they're an indication of what we as humans value and the kind of society we'd like to live in. And so I think those are, I guess, the small building blocks for how we can begin to move forward. I think there's a long history of the enactment of radical care among organizations. There's groups like the Black Panther Party that in the 1960s offered free breakfast for children and free medical care. There was a domestic violence shelter movement that was started by women's organizations. And so there's many, many examples of that kind of political radicalism associated with care work. And today there's a group called Damayan Migrant Workers Association in New York City that is doing the same kind of thing. They're on the one hand providing care, radical care for their members while also fighting for higher pay and better working conditions for domestic workers. And so I think it's possible. I think there's a lot of hope around us right now. I just think we need to identify it and take inspiration from it. (laughs) 
Thank you so much to Premila Nadasan for coming on the podcast. Her latest book is Care, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. My copy is dog-eared and highlighted, like I told Premila in our interview. It was a capital E, education. And if you want to go deeper on the history of and organizing of domestic workers, go back and listen to Unladylike episode number nine, How to Nanny Up, where we talk to Ai-Jen Poo and Allison Julian of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. As always, I would love to hear from y'all. What do you think? Send me your voice memos and emails. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send them, or you can DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Patreon is the place where you can go to directly support Unladylike and also get yourself the latest Unladies Room bonus episode where I deep dive on the history and fear of no-fault divorce. Because did y'all know that apparently January is the divorce month? It has like the highest rate of people filing for divorce. I guess it's sort of like a new year, new you kind of thing. And yeah, I know we're already in February. So go to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia or just search unladylikemedia in the Patreon app. And while you're at it, go ahead and follow Unladylike Media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Unladylike is an Unladylike media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Our engineer is Amita Ganatra. Music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. Well, Premila, I have just one last question for you that I ask all of my guests. Mm-hmm. What is the most unladylike thing about you? The most unladylike thing about me. Hmm. I guess that's a question of what you define as ladylike. I think that's what I'm right? stuck on because I feel like everything that I am, which is outspoken and I can be pushy and confident, but, you know, are those unladylike? I would hope those are ladylike. So I'm just going to say, very often when my husband and I go out to dinner, I'm the one who pays. <laughs> and I'm the one who'll order a steak and he'll order an appetizer. And I order a glass of beer and he orders a glass of wine. <laughs> and so I think we often confound the servers for whom the gender stereotypes are the man would order the steak and the beer and would pay the bill. <laughs> so that 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 often confuses people. Oh, I love that. You like to take a man out for a steak dinner. <laughs> for myself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs>